Chapter Three of Captain Jim. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Captain Jim, by Mary Grant Bruce. Chapter Three of London and Other Matters. Jim and Wally dropped lightly from the footboard of a swift motor bus, dodged through traffic, and swung quickly down a quiet side street. They stopped before a stone house where. From a window above, Nora watched their eager faces as Jim fitted his latchkey and opened the door. She turned back into the room with a little sigh. There they are, Dad, and they're past fit, I know. David Linton looked up from the elbow splint he was making. Well, it had to come, mate, he said. Yes, I know, but I hoped it wouldn't, said poor Nora inconsistently. "'You wouldn't like them not to go,' said her father, and then cheery footsteps clattered up the stairs and the boys burst in. "'Past!' shouted Jim. "'Fit as fiddles!' "'When?' Nora asked. "'This day week. So we'll have nice time to settle you into Homewood and try those horses, won't we?' "'Yes, rather,' said Nora. "'Were they quite satisfied with your arm, Wally?' "'Yes, they say it's a lovely arm,' said that gentleman modestly. "'I always knew it, but it's nice to have other people agreeing with me. "'And they say our lungs are beautiful, too. "'Not a trace of gas left. "'And, oh, you tell them, Jim.' "'And we're not to go out yet,' said Jim, grinning widely. "'Special Lewis gun course at Aldershot first, "'and after that a bombing course. "'So there you are.' He broke off, his utterance hindered by the fact that Nora had suddenly hugged him very hard, while David Linton, jumping up, caught Wally's hand. "'Not the front, my dear boys.' "'Well, not yet,' said Wally, pumping the hand and finding Nora searching for his free one. "'It's pretty decent, isn't it? Because everyone knows there will be plenty of war at the front yet.' "'Plenty indeed,' said Mr. Linton.' "'I say, buck up, old chap,' said Jim, patting Nora's shoulder very hard. "'One would think we were booked for the trenches to-night.' "'I wouldn't have made an ass of myself if you had been,' said Nora, shaking back her curls and mopping her eyes defiantly. "'I was prepared for that, and then you struck me all of a heap. "'Oh, Jimmy, I am glad. I'd like to hug the war office.' "'You're the first person I ever heard with such sentiments,' returned her brother. "'Most people want to heave bombs at it. "'However, they've treated us decently, and no mistake. "'You see, ever since June we've kept bothering them to go out, "'and then getting throat trouble and having to cave in again. "'And now that we really are all right, I suppose they think they'll make sure of us. "'So that's that.' "'I would have been awfully wild if they hadn't passed us,' Wally said." "'But since they have, and they'll put us to work, "'I don't weep a bit at being kept back for a while. "'Lots of chaps seem to think being at the front is heavenly, "'but I'm blessed if I can see it that way. "'We didn't have very much time there, certainly, "'but there were only three ingredients in what we did have, "'mud, barbed wire, and gas.' "'Yes, and it's not much of a mixture,' said Jim. "'All the same.' It's got to be taken if necessary. 
Still, I'm not sorry it's postponed for a bit. There will be heaps of war yet, and meanwhile we're just learning the trade. He straightened his great shoulders. I never felt so horribly young and ignorant as when I found grown-up men in my charge in France. Poor old Jimmy always did take his responsibilities heavily, said Wally, laughing. Mr. Linton looked at his big son, remembering a certain letter from his commanding officer, which had caused him and Nora to glow with pride. Remembering also how the man on Billabong Station had worked under Master Jim. But he knew that soldiering had always been a serious business to his boy. Personal danger had never entered into Jim's mind, but the danger of ignorant handling of his men had been a tremendous thing to him. Even without mud, barbed wire and gas, Jim was never likely to enjoy war in the light-hearted way in which Wally would certainly take it under more pleasant conditions. "'Well, we've a week then, boys,' he said cheerfully and no anxieties immediately before us except the new cook-ladies. "'Well, goodness knows they are enough,' Nora said fervently. "'Anything more settled?' Jim asked. "'I have an ecstatic letter from Allenby. Allenby was the ex-sergeant. He seems in a condition of trembling joy at the prospect of being our butler, and, what is more to the point, he says he has a niece whom he can recommend as a housemaid.' "'so I've told him to install her before we get to Homewood on Thursday. "'Hawkins has written a three-volume list of things he will require for the farm, "'but he haven't had time to study it yet. "'And Nora has had letters from nineteen registry offices, all asking for a deposit.' "'The boys roared. "'That makes seventy-one, doesn't it, Nora?' Wally asked. "'Something like it,' Nora admitted ruefully. "'and the beauty of it is not one of them will guarantee so much as a kitchen-maid. "'They say, sadly, that, in the present crisis, it's difficult to supply servants. "'They don't seem to think there's any difficulty about paying them deposit fees.' "'That phrase, in the present crisis, is the backbone of business today,' Mr. Linton said. "'If a shop can't sell you anything, or if they mislay your property,' or sell your purchase to someone else, or keep your repairs six months and then lose them, or send in your account with a lot of items you never ordered or received. They simply wave the present crisis at you, and all is well. Yes, but they don't regard it as any excuse if you pay too little or don't pay at all, Jim said. Of course not. That wouldn't be business, my son, said Wally, laughing. The one department the crisis doesn't hit is the one that sends out bills. He turned to Nora. What about the cook lady, Nora? She's safe, said Nora, sighing with relief. There's an awfully elegant letter from her saying she'll come. Oh, that's good business, Jim said. For a fortnight Nora had had the unforgettable experience of sitting in registry offices, attempting to engage a staff for Homewood. She had always been escorted by one or more of her male belongings, and their extreme ignorance of how to conduct the business had been plain to the meanest intelligence. The ex-sergeant, whose spirit of meekness in proposing himself had been in extraordinary contrast to the condescending truculence of other candidates, had been thankfully retained. There had at times seemed a danger that instead of butler he might awake to find himself maid of all work 
since not one of the applicants came up to even Nora's limited standard. Finally, however, Mr. Linton had refused to enter any more registry offices, or to let Nora enter them, describing them in good set terms as abominable holes. And judicious advertising had secured him a housekeeper who seemed promising, and a cook who insisted far more on the fact that she was a lady than on any ability to prepare meals. The family, while not enthusiastic, was hopeful. "'I hope she is all right,' Nora said doubtfully. "'I suppose we can't expect much. "'They all tell you that nearly every servant in England has gone into munitions, "'which always sounds as though she'd get fired out of a trench mortar presently. "'Some of those we saw might be benefited by the process,' said Mr. Linton, "'shuddering at memories of registry offices. "'Well, what about the rest? "'Haven't you got to get a kitchen-maid and some more housemaids or things?' queried Jim vaguely. "'I'm not going to try here,' said Mr. Linton firmly. "'Life is too short. I'd sooner be my own kitchen-maid than let Nora into one of those offices again. Allenby's niece will have to double a few parts at first. And I've written to Ireland, to Mrs. Moroni, to see if she can find us two or three nice country girls. I believe she'll be able to do it.' Meanwhile, we'll throw care to the winds. I've told Allenby to order in all necessary stores, so that we can be sure of getting something to eat when we go down. Beyond that, I decline to worry, or let Nora worry about anything. Then let's go out and play, cried Nora, jumping up. Right, said the boys. Where? Oh, anywhere. We'll settle as we go, said Nora airily. She fled for her hat and coat. So they went to the Tower of London, a place little known to the English, but of which Australians never tire, and spent a blissful afternoon in the armory, examining every variety of weapons and armament, from crusaders' chain-mail to twentieth-century rifles. There is no place so full of old stories and of history history that suddenly becomes quite a different matter from something you learn by the half-page out of an extremely dull book at school. This is history alive, and the dim old tower becomes peopled with gay and gallant figures, clad in shining armour, bent on knightly adventures. There you see male shirts of woven links that slip like silken mesh through the fingers, yet could withstand the deadliest thrust of a dagger. Maces with spiked heads that only a mighty man could swing, swords such as that with which Coeur de Lyon could slice through such a mace as though it were no more than a carrot, sinuous blades that Saladin loved, that would sever a down cushion flung in the air, daggers and poignards, too, of every age, needle-pointed, yet viciously strong, with exquisitely inlaid hilts and fine-lined blades. Long rapiers that brought visions of gallants with curls and lace stocks and silken hose as ready to fight as to dance or to make a poem to a fair lady's eyebrow. Helmets of every age, with visors behind which the knights of old had looked grimly as they charged down the lists at gentle and joyous passages of arms. Horse armour of amazing weight, I always pictured those old knights prancing out on a thirteen-stone hack, 
"'but you want a Suffolk punch to carry that ironmongery,' said Wally. "'So through room after room, each full of brave ghosts of the past, "'looking benevolently at the tall boy-soldiers from the new world. "'Until at length came closing time, and they went out reluctantly.' across the flagged yard where poor young Anne Boleyn laid her gentle head on the block, where the ravens hop and caw to-day as their ancestors did in the sixteenth century, when she walked across from her grim prison that still bears on its wall a scrawled Anne. A dull little prison-room, it must have been, after the glitter and pomp of castles and palaces, with only the rugged walls of the tower-yard to look upon from the tiny window. She must have had such a jolly good time at first, said Wally. Old Henry the Eighth was very keen on her, wasn't he? And then she was only his second wife. By the time he'd had six, they must have begun to feel themselves rather too a penny. They found a bus that took them by devious ways through the city, the part of London that many Londoners never see, since it is another world from the world of Bond Street and Oxford Street with their newness and their glittering shops. But to the queer folk who come from overseas it is the real London, and they wander in its narrow streets and link fingers with the past. Old names look down from the smoke-grimed walls. Blackfriars and Whitefriars, Bread Street, St. Martin's Lane, Leadenhall Street, Temple Bar. The hurrying crowd of to-day fades, and instead come ghosts of armed men and of leather-jerkin prentices, less ready to work than to fight, of gallants with ruffs and fierce sailor-men of the days of Queen Bess, home from the Spanish main with ships laden with gold, swaggering up from the docks to spend their prize-money as quickly as they earned it, Visions of dark nights, with link-boys running beside chair-bearers, carrying exquisite ladies to routs and masks. Of footpaths slinking into dark alleys and doorways as the watch comes tramping down the street. Visions of the press-gang, hunting stout lads, into every tavern, whisking them from their hiding-places and off to the ships. To disappear with never a word of farewell, until, years later, Bronzed and tarred, that strange of speech, they returned to astounded families who had long mourned them as dead. Visions of Queen Bess, with her haughty face and her red hair, riding through the city that adored her, her white palfrey stepping daintily through the cheering crowd. And great gentlemen beside her, Raleigh, Essex, Howard, they all wandered together through the grey streets, where the centuries-old buildings tower overhead, all blending together, a formless jumble of the past, and yet very much alive, and it does not seem to matter in the least that you look down upon them from a rattling motor-bus that leaves pools of oil where perchance lit a puddle over which Raleigh flung his cloak, lest his queen's slipper should be soiled. Very soon we shall look down on the city from airships while conductors come and stamp our tickets with a bell-punch. But the old city will be unchanged, and it will be only we who look upon it who will pass like shadows from its face. The Australians left their bus in Fleet Street, and dived down a narrow lane to a low doorway, with the sign of the Cheshire Cheese. 
the old inn, with sanded floor and bare oak benches and tables, where Dr. Johnson and his followers used to meet, to dine and afterwards to smoke long churchwarden pipes and talk, as Wally said, such amazing fine language that it made you feel a little light-headed. It is to be feared that the Australians had not any great enthusiasm for Dr. Johnson. They had paid a visit of inspection to the room upstairs where the great man used to take his ease, but not one of them had felt any desire to sit in his big armchair. "'You don't understand what a chance you're scorning,' Mr. Linden had said, laughing as his family turned from the seat of honour. "'Why, good Americans die happy!' if they can only say they have sat in Dr. Johnson's chair. "'I think he was an ill-mannered old man,' quoth Nora, with her nose tilted, which seemed to end the matter so far as they were concerned. But if the Billabong family took no interest in Dr. Johnson, they had a deep affection for the old inn itself. They loved its dim rooms with their blackened oak, and it was a never-ending delight to watch the medley of people who came there for meals, actors, artists, literary folk, famous and otherwise, Americans, foreigners, colonials, politicians, fighting men of both services, busy city men, for everybody comes sooner or later to the old Cheshire cheese. Being people of plain tastes, they liked the solid, honest meals, especially since increasing war prices were already inducing hotels and restaurants everywhere to disguise a tablespoonful of hashed altmans under an elegant French name and sell it for as much money as a dinner for a hungry man. Nora used to fight shy of the famous lark pudding, until it was whispered to her that what was not good beefsteaks in the dish was nothing more than pigeon or possibly even sparrow, after which she enjoyed it and afterwards pilgrimage to the kitchen to see the great blue bowls, as big as a wash-hand basin, in which the puddings have been made since Dr. Johnson's time, and the great copper in which they are boiled all night. Legend says that anyone who can eat three helpings of lark pudding is presented with all that remains, but no one has ever heard of a hero able to manage his third plateful. Best of all, the Billabong folk loved the great cellars under the inn, which were once the cloisters of an old monastery, where there are unexpected steps and dim archways and winding paths where it is very easy to imagine that you see bare-footed friars with brown habits and robe girdles pacing slowly along. There they bought quaint brown jars and mustard pots of the kind that are used, and have always been used, on the tables above. But best of all were the great oaken beams above them, solid as England itself, but blackened and charred by the great fire of 1666. Nora used to touch the burned surface gently, wondering if it was not a dream, if the hand on the broken caracol were really her own, more used to Boson's bridle on the wide plains of Billabong, there were not many people in the room as they came in this evening, for it was early. Dinner, indeed, was scarcely ready, and a few customers sat about, reading evening papers and discussing the war news. In one corner were an officer and a lady, 
and at sight of the former Jim and Wally saluted and broke into joyful smiles. The officer jumped up and greeted them warmly. "'Hello, boys,' he said. "'I'm delighted to see you. Fit again? You look it.' "'Dad, this is Major Hunt,' Jim said, dragging his father forward. "'You remember? Of our regiment. And my sister, sir. I say, I'm awfully glad to see you.' "'Come and meet my wife,' said Major Hunt. "'Stella, here are the two young Australians that used to make my life a burden.' Everybody shook hands indiscriminately, and presently they joined forces round a big table, while Jim and Wally poured out questions concerning the regiment and everyone in it. "'Most of them are going strong,' Major Hunt said. "'We have a good few casualties, of course, but we haven't lost many officers. Most of them have come back. I think all your immediate chums are still in France. But I've been out of it myself for two months.' "'Stopped a bit of shrapnel with my hand, and it won't get better.' He indicated a bandaged left hand as he spoke, and they realised that his face was worn and deeply lined with pain. "'It's stupid,' he said, and laughed. "'But when are you coming back? We've plenty of work for you.' They told him, eagerly. "'Well, you might just as well learn all you can before you go out,' Major Hunt said. The war's not going to finish this winter, or the next. Indeed, I wouldn't swear that my six-year-old son, who is drilling hard, won't have time to be in it at the finish. At which Mrs. Hunt shuddered and said, Don't be so horrible, Douglas. She was a slight pretty woman, cheery and pleasant, and she made them all laugh by her stories of work in a canteen. "'All the soldiers used to look upon us as just part of the furniture,' she said. "'They used to rush in, in a break between parades, and give their orders in a terrible hurry. "'As for saying, please, well—' "'You ought to have straightened them up,' said Major Hunt, with a good-tempered growl. "'Ah, poor boys, they hadn't time. "'The Irish regiment were better, but then it isn't any trouble for an Irishman to be polite.' It comes to him naturally. But those stolid English country lads can't say things easily. She laughed. I remember a young lance corporal who used often to come to our house to see my maid. He was terribly shy, and if I chanced to go into the kitchen, he always bolted like a rabbit into the scullery. The really terrible thing was that sometimes I had to go on to the scullery myself, and run him to earth among the saucepans when he would positively shake with terror. I used to wonder how he ever summoned up courage to speak to Susan, let alone to face the foe when he went to France. "'That's the sort of thing that gets the V.C. without thinking about it,' said Major Hunt, laughing. "'I was very busy in the canteen one morning.' It was a cold, wet day, and the man rushed us for hot drinks whenever they had a moment. Presently a warrior dashed up to the counter, banged down his penny, and said, Coffee! in a voice of thunder. I looked up and caught his eye as I was turning to run for the coffee. And it was my lance corporal. What did you do? We just gibbered at each other across the counter for a moment, I believe and I never saw a face so horror-stricken. 
Then he turned and fled, leaving his penny behind him. Poor boy, I gave it to Susan to return to him. "'Didn't you ever make friends with any of them, Mrs. Hunt?' Nora asked. "'Oh, yes, when we had time, or when they had. But often one was on the rush for every minute of our four-hour shifts.' "'Jolly good of you,' said Jim. "'Good gracious, no. It was a very poor sort of war-work, but busy mothers with only one maid couldn't manage more. And I loved it, especially in Cork. The Irish boys were dears, and so keen. I had a great respect for those boys. The lads who enlisted in England had all their chums doing the same thing, and everybody patted them on the back and said how noble they were, and gave them parties and speeches and presents. But the Irish boys enlisted, very often, dead against the wishes of their own people, and against their priest, and you've got to live in Ireland to know what that means. The wonder to me was, always, the number of Irishmen who did enlist, said Major Hunt, and aren't they fighters? They must be great, Jim said. You should hear our fellows talk about the Dublins and the Munsters and Gallipoli. His face clouded. It was a grievous matter to Jim that he had not been with those other Australian boys, who had already made the name of Anzac ring through the world. "'Yes, you must be very proud of your country,' Mrs. Hunt said, with her charming smile. "'I tell my husband that we must emigrate there after the war. "'It must be a great place in which to bring up children, "'judging by all the Australians one sees. "'Possibly, but a man with a damaged hand isn't wanted there,' Major Hunt said curtly. "'Oh, you'll be all right long before we want to go out,' was his wife's cheerful response." but there was a shadow in her eyes. Wally did not notice any shadow. He had hero-worshipped Major Hunt in his first days of soldiering, when that much-enduring officer, a Mons veteran, with the DSO to his credit, had been chiefly responsible for the training of newly joined subalterns, and Major Hunt, in his turn, had liked the two Australian boys, who, whatever their faults of carelessness or ignorance, were never anything but keen. Now, in his delight at meeting his senior officer again, Wally chattered away like a magpie, asking questions, telling Irish fishing stories and other stories of adventures in Ireland, hazarding wild opinions about the war, and generally manifesting a cheerful disregard of the fact that the tired man opposite him was not a subaltern as irresponsible as himself. Somehow the weariness died out of Major Hunt's eyes. He began to joke in his turn and to tell queer yarns of the trenches, and presently, indeed, the whole party seemed to be infected by the same spirit so that the old walls of the Chester cheese echoed laughter that must have been exceedingly discouraging to the ghost of Dr. Johnson, if, as is said, that unamiable maker of dictionaries haunts his ancient tavern. "'Well, you've made us awfully cheerful,' said Major Hunt, when dinner was over and they were dawdling over coffee. "'Stella and I were feeling rather down on our luck, I believe, when you appeared, and now we've forgotten all about it.' Do you always behave like this, Miss Linton? No, I'd have to be very sedate, or I'd never keep my big family in order, said Nora, laughing. You've no idea what a responsibility they are. 
"'Haven't I?' said he. "'You forgot I have a houseful of my own.' "'Tell me about them,' Nora asked. "'Do we keep them in order?' "'We say we do, for the sake of discipline, "'but I'm not too sure about it,' said Mrs. Hunt. "'As a matter of fact, I am very strict, "'but Douglas undoes all my good work.' Is it really true that he is strict in the regiment, Mr. Jim? Jim and Wally shuddered. I'd find it easier to tell you if he wasn't here, Jim said. There are awful memories, aren't there, Wall? Rather, said Wally feelingly. Do you remember the day I didn't salute on parade? I believe your mangled remains were carried off the barrack square, said Jim with a twinkle. I expect I should have been one of the fatigue party, only that was the day I was improperly dressed. What, you didn't come on parade in a bath towel, did you? his father asked. No, but I had a shoulder strap undone. It's nearly as bad, isn't it, sir? Jim grinned at Major Hunt. If I could remember the barrack square frown at the moment, I would assume it, said the officer, laughing. "'Never mind. I'll deal with you both when we all get back.' "'You haven't told me about the family,' Nora persisted. "'The family you are strict with, I mean,' she added kindly. "'You have no more respect for a field officer than your brother has,' said he. "'Whisper,' said Mrs. Hunt. "'He was only a subaltern himself before the war.' Her husband eyed her severely. You'll get put under arrest if you make statements liable to excite indiscipline among the troops, he said. Don't listen to her, Miss Linton, and I'll tell you about the family she spoils. There's Geoffrey, who is six, and Alison, who's five, at least. I think she's five, isn't she, Stella? Much you know of your babies, said his wife with a fine scorn. Alison won't be five for two months. "'Hasn't she a passion for detail?' said her husband admiringly. "'Well, five-ish, Miss Linton. "'And finally there's a two-year-old named Michael. "'When they all get going together they make rather more noise than a regiment. "'But they're rather jolly, and I hope you'll come and see them.' "'Oh, do,' said Mrs. Hunt. "'Geoffrey would just love to hear about Australia.' He told me the other day that when he grows up he means to go out there and be a kangaroo. I suppose you know you must never check a child's natural ambitions, Mr. Linton told her gravely. Was that your plan? she laughed. Oh, my pair hadn't any ambitions beyond sitting on horses perpetually and pursuing cattle, said Mr. Linton. That was very useful to me, so I certainly didn't check it. Hmm. <laughs> said Jim, regarding him inquiringly. I wonder how your theory would have lasted, Dad, if I'd grown my hair long and taken to painting. That wouldn't have been a natural ambition at all, so I should have been able to deal with it with a clear conscience, said his father, laughing. In any case, the matter could safely have been left to Nora. She would have been more than equal to it. I trust so, said Nora pleasantly. You with long hair, Jimmy. It's amazing and painful to see the number of fellows who take long hair into khaki with them, said Major Hunt. The old army custom was to get your hair cut over the comb for home service and under the comb for active service. Jolly good rule, too. 
but the subaltern of the new army goes into the trenches with locks like a musician's. At least, too many of him does. "'Never could understand anyone caring for the bother of long hair,' said Jim, running his hand over his dark, close-cropped pole. "'I say, isn't it time we made a move, if we're going to a show?' He looked half-slyly at Mrs. Hunt. "'Won't you and the Major come with us?' "'It's been so jolly meeting you.' "'Good idea,' said Mr. Linton, cutting across Mrs. Hunt's protest. "'Do come. I know Nora is longing to be asked to meet the family, and that will give you time to fix it up.' He overruled any further objections by the simple process of ignoring them, whereupon the Hunts wisely gave up manufacturing any more. And presently they had discovered two taxis. Nora and her father taking Mrs. Hunt in the first, leaving the three soldiers who follow in the second. They slid off through the traffic of Fleet Street. "'We really shouldn't let you take possession of us like this,' said Mrs. Hunt a little helplessly. "'But it has been so lovely to see Douglas cheerful again. He has not laughed so much for months.' "'You are anxious about his hand?' David Linton asked. "'Yes, very.' He has had several kinds of treatment for it, but it doesn't seem to get better, and the pain is wearing. The doctors say his best chance is a thorough change, as well as treatment, but we can't manage it. The three babies are expensive atoms. Now there's a probability of another operation to his hand, and he has been so depressed about it that I dragged him out to dinner in the hope of cheering him up. But I don't think I should have succeeded if we hadn't met you. It was great luck for us, Nora said. The boys have always told us so much of Major Hunt. He was ever so good to them. He told me about them, too, said Mrs. Hunt. He liked them because he said he never succeeded in boring them. Why, you couldn't bore Jim and Wally, said Nora, laughing. Then a great idea fell upon her, and she grew silent, leaving the conversation to her companions as the taxi whirred on its swift way through the crowded streets until they drew up before the theatre. In the vestibule she found her father close to her, and endeavoured to convey many things to him, by squeezing his arm very hard among the crowd, succeeding in so much that Mr. Linton knew perfectly well that Nora was the victim of a new idea and was quite content to wait to be told what it was. But there was no chance of that until the evening was over, and they had bade farewell to the hunts, arranging to have tea with them the next day, after which a taxi bore them to the Kensington flat, and they gathered in a sitting-room while Nora brewed coffee over a spirit lamp. "'I'm jolly glad we met the hunts,' Jim said. But isn't it cruel luck for a man like that to be kept back by a damaged hand? Rough on Mrs. Hunt, too, Wally remarked. She looked about as seedy as he did. Daddy, said Nora eagerly. David Linton laughed. Yes, I knew you had one, he said. Out with it. I'll listen. They're tired people, said Nora, and waited. "'Yes, they're certainly tired enough,' said her father. "'But the children, Nora, I don't think we could possibly take in little children, "'considering the other weary inmates.' "'No, I thought not, too,' Nora answered eagerly. "'But don't you remember the cottage, Daddy? Why shouldn't they have it?' 
"'By Jove!' said Jim. "'That jolly little thatched place!' "'Yes, it has several rooms.' They could let their own house, and then they'd save heaps of money. It would get them right out of London, and Mrs. Hunt told me that London is the very worst place for him. The doctor said so. That is certainly an idea, Mr. Linton said. It's near enough to London for Hunt to run up for his treatment. We could see that they were comfortable. He smiled at Nora, whose flushed face was dimly visible through the steam of the coffee. I think it would be rather a good way to begin our job, Nora. It would be so nice that it doesn't feel like any sort of work, said Nora. I think you may find a chance of work. They have three small children and not much money, said her father prophetically. I say, I hope the Major would agree, Jim put in. I know he's horribly proud. We'll kidnap the babies, and then they'll just have to come, Nora laughed. "'Picture Mr. Linton,' said Wally happily, "'carrying on the good work by stalking through London "'with three kids sticking out of his pockets, "'followed by Nora, armed with feeding bottles. "'Wounded officer and wife, hard in pursuit, "'armed with shotguns,' supplemented Jim. "'I like your pacifist ideas of running a home for tired people, I must say. "'Why, they would forget that they had ever been tired,' said Nora. I think it's rather a brilliant notion. There certainly wouldn't be another convalescent home in England run on the same lines. But you're not good on matters of detail. People don't have feeding bottles for babies at that age. I'm not well up in babies, said Wally. Nice people, but I like somebody else to manage them. I thought bottles were pretty safe until they were about seven. Well, we'll talk it over with the Huns tomorrow. The cottage, not the bottles, Mr. Linton said. Meanwhile, it's bedtime, so good night, everybody. He dispersed the assembly by the simple process of switching off the electric light, smiling to himself as Jim and Nora two-stepped, singing down the tiny corridor in the darkness. But the midday post brought a worried little note from Mrs. Hunt, putting off the party. Her husband had had a bad report on his hand that morning, and was going into hospital for an immediate operation. She hoped to fix a day later on. The note was a little incoherent. Nora had a sudden vision of the three small hunts, who made rather more noise than a regiment, rampaging round the harassed mother as she tried to write. "'Perhaps it's as well. We'll study the cottage and make sure that it's all right for them,' said her father. Then we'll kidnap them. Meanwhile, we'll go and send them a big hamper of fruit, and put some sweets in for the babies. A plan which was so completely after Nora's heart, that she quite forgot her disappointment. End of chapter 3